So to begin the sermon, we are going to go ahead and kill the lights, and we've got a Christmas video to show you. They say there's a big man who lives far away, supposedly jolly, but it's hard to say. I've never seen him and neither have you. But the children believe, and I suppose that'll do. He's known as a loner with many a quirk, no time for a chat, he's embroiled in his work. He keeps to himself for most of the year. I reckon we're grateful he doesn't appear. We send him requests for particular needs, but we never hear back. Who knows if he heeds? We try to be good, give his arm a twist, to merit our place on his blessed little list. And maybe one day, if we do what we should, he'll give us our things just so long as we're good. <laughs> I've had it to hear. I'm calling his bluff. He's a weird, moralistic dispenser of stuff. Granted, this rant is a strange one to pick, but listen, I'm not really after St. Nick. As strange as he is and Santa is odd, I'm really addressing most folks' view of God. It's God who we see as some distant big guy, some ancient invisible St. Nick in the sky. He sees you asleep, he knows when you wake, he's watching and waiting to spot your mistake. And just like with Santa, requests we hand in. We want all his things, but we don't want him. That's our connection with old Father Christmas. We might dress it up, it's essentially business. Throughout the year, good behavior's our onus. When Christmas rolls around, we're expecting our bonus. Just leave us our gifts, Nick, we've been good enough. And then please push on, now we've got all your stuff. I mean, Santa is interesting, curious, quirky, but nobody wants him to share their turkey. I'm sure his ho-ho-hos are sublime, but I fear what he'll say once he's drunk our mulled wine. That's old St. Nick, but the picture rings true. It's how we imagine what God is like, too. But Christmas resounds with a stunning not-so. The one from on high was born down below. To a world in need, he did not send another. God the Son became God our brother. He drew alongside forever to dwell. Our God in the flesh, Emmanuel. This God in the manger upends all our notions. A heavenly stooping divine demotion. Born in a stable, wriggling on straw, fully committed to life in the raw. Santa gives things and then goes away. Jesus shows up to befriend and to stay. Santa rewards those for good behavior. Jesus draws near to the broken as savior. If you don't like God, I think I know why. You probably think he's St. Nick in the sky. You're right to reject that faraway stranger. This Christmas, look down to the God in the manger. So did you like that? You know, honestly, many of us have that view of that Saint Nick in the sky. That's, that's our God. We want to present our list to him, hoping that we are on his list. That is the nice list, right? And especially for those who don't know Jesus, there is this fear that that St. Nick that they believe is in the sky won't give them everything that they're wanting, like maybe a nice life, a happy marriage, obedient kids, and eternal life in heaven. That would be nice. And they're afraid that they are not going to be on God's list, God's nice list. But you know what? That is not just something that non-Christians struggle with. 
Can I be honest with you? That is something that as Christians we can struggle with. We can, we can see God as St. Nick in the sky. I looked around my house for, a, for a, a Santa Claus and I could not find one, so this will have to do. This is a bear dressed up as St. Nick. Now there's a reason why we don't have Santa Clauses in our house. Though some people have given us to them, I think as jokes, on Christmas morning. But the reason why is because of what he says in the manger, that we want to look to the babe in the manger. Because that God, as he says, is not a stranger. My question is, what is your view of God? Is he like jolly old St. Nick? Is he... The one that if you're good enough and make it on his nice list, he'll give you everything that you want. Okay, at least most things. If we're Christians, we pray and we ask and we are wondering, have I made it on God's good list? Have I been good enough? Because if I've not been good enough, I'm wondering if he's really going to give me what I'm asking for right now. You see, when I was a kid, I, I, was, I grew up in a home in which we did believe in Santa Claus. Uh, I was probably four or five years old, and I remember come December, if it wasn't my mom, it was my older brothers that I was irritating, challenged me to be good, because if I wasn't good enough, then old St. Nick may not give me all the presents that I want under the Christmas tree come Christmas morning. So that was sufficient motivation to me. I wanted to be really good, because I believed in Santa Claus. And of course, one day, I found out something, and that was not just that there was no Santa Claus. Sorry, did I just ruin some of your Christmases? I hope not. But that my view of God was just like that, and God had to change me. God had to mold my heart, and God had to do something in me that maybe, just maybe, God needs to do in your heart because you're on this performance basis hoping to make good with God so that whenever you ask him for something really big and it's really important you get it, you're wondering, am I on the nice list? Have I been good enough? You see, there's a problem here, and it's not just our view of God. Our problem is this thing that the Bible calls sin. Last week, I looked at Jesus as king coming in a manger, the magi heralding his birth, wanting to follow and wanting to worship this king. And, and you remember King Herod got pretty irritated about it and all Jerusalem with him, Matthew 2 says. And he, he set out to destroy this baby. He failed because God intervened and rescued his son. But this God that was born in the manger came as king and it says he came and by the cross and resurrection, he won a decisive battle that we saw in Revelation chapter 12. Rather an odd place to find a Christmas message, grant you. But in Revelation chapter 12, we discovered there was a war in heaven, and the decisive moment came in which the angels, in which God declared, now salvation has come, and that happened at the cross and the resurrection, and Satan was kicked out of heaven. 
No more to stand as Satan, as the accuser before God to accuse you and me. And so we saw that God became human as king to conquer our enemies. And the one we looked at last week was Satan. This week, I want us to look at another enemy. There are actually several enemies that we're going to look at, but sin is another enemy. Now, realize that this child came not as Santa dressed up in a manger, but as the angel said today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. Now, the, the, the angel, excuse me, the shepherds didn't look at you and say, I didn't even know my wife was pregnant. What do you mean he's born to me? And the good news is that even though Joseph and Mary actually gave birth, the Savior's been born for you and for me. And this is what the discovery is Christmas is all about, that God, born in the flesh, came to this earth for you and for me as Savior. Was God in the manger, as he said. So we are actually eventually going to be looking at not at Revelation again, but we're going to look at an even more odd place to find a Christmas sermon, and we're going to get there in a moment, but we're going to be looking in the book of Leviticus. Woohoo! <laughs> what? Yeah, that's right. Not there yet. Turn to John chapter 1. John chapter 1, John is such an amazing gospel, I tell you what. John was the first gospel that I read, uh, actually the book of Revelation was the first book in the Bible that I read because I was so into the end times, even as a non-Christian, even as someone who went to church and was really intrigued by end times. I read through the book of Revelation and what Hal Lindsey back in the 70s had to say, but eventually when I was 14, I discovered this. I discovered the good news, and that's what the Gospel of John is all about. John is such an amazing book because... It's an easy read on the one hand. You can read through it and get the gospel. But of all the gospels, I would say that John is the most complex. How about this? John 1.1. 1, 1. In the beginning, are you there? In the beginning was the word. And the word, what does it say? Was in the word. In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God. And the word was God. Look at verse 14. And the word became, what? Flesh. Wait, 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 wait. And the word, who was God, became flesh and dwelled among us, and we beheld his glory. I want us to look at that. And on the surface, it might seem, well, you know, that's, that's nice, God came down as man, he was born in a manger, cute story, you know, we set up a Christmas tree with a, sometimes an angel on top or a star, and you know, it's such a nice story. I've, one of my favorite movies is The Nativity. I, I love that, so realistic in, in many ways. But this is more than just a nice story. This is God becoming flesh dwelling among us. And we're going to need to unwrap this at least a little bit. And that's going to lead us to Leviticus, but not yet. Just uh, two weeks ago in my apologetics class, 
which is basically evidences for the Christian faith that we're looking at, we had to ask ourselves the question, and that is the pro- it, it's formed in this concept of the problem of evil. That was actually, and I think they've all taken the test so I can say it, that's actually the, 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 the issue of the, the problem with evil is worded this way. How can an all-loving, all-powerful God allow evil? How can this God who's loving and powerful allow evil? Because if he's, if he's powerful, then surely he can stop evil, but he didn't, so I guess he's not very loving. But if he's all loving, then surely he should stop and would want to stop suffering and evil and sin and the like, but apparently he's not powerful enough. But my Bible tells me that an all-powerful, all-loving God created and sin destroyed. Why would God allow this? I'm going to share with you two reasons that are connected, but I want to focus on the second one. The first one is that God created you because he really wanted a relationship with you. Have you ever had a relationship with someone and there was zero love in it? Zero love. I don't think such a relationship can really exist. It's a forced relationship. When God created you, he created you to love him. We love because he first loved us. But when, or rather with love, he had to give us free will because coerced love is not love at all. And so if we are to love, he's got to give us free will so that we can do what? So that we can choose to love God. See, that's, that's where the heart of love is. It is birthed out of a choice to love. It is birthed out of a choice to give, serve. And so for, if we're going to love, he had to give us free will. But guess what happens when he gives us free will? We also have the ability to not just choose to love, but we have the ability to choose to rebel, to sin, to do evil. And that's what we did. And we... Collectively, in Adam broke this world, and so there is sin, and the curse, and suffering, and death, and the problems that you had this past week, and the frustrations, and the anger, and maybe even the bitterness, and the hurts that came your way, all of this is the result of sin. It's the sum total of the curse. But there's more, because this God that created a world and we broke it, did not simply say, you know what? You broke the world, live with it. I mean, many of us, that's how we feel. God has just left us alone and we have to endure the, the problems of this world. But you see, here is the Christmas story. It's actually found in the answer to that hard question about God allowing evil. Because this God did not say, you broke the world, tough luck, live with it, deal with it. He stepped into our suffering. He stepped into your pain. And trust me, the greatest pain that you have ever experienced, think about that for a moment. Not not a real pleasant thought, is it? But as you contemplate the severest pain that you've ever had to go through in your life, the suffering that Jesus took upon himself is far greater. Jesus did not look down on his creation 
and kind of just do whatever. You blew it, deal with it. He said, you know what? You blew it. I'll deal with it. And he stepped down into your pain, into your suffering, so that when the shepherds looked and peered into that manger of a child sleeping on the hay, they looked into the face of God. They looked into the face of a savior, a king who came to destroy Satan, to destroy sin. And so we have here in, in John 1.14, and our little ones back there are already explaining it, so I better hurry up here. But, and the word became flesh. No, it doesn't say that God wrapped himself in flesh. That might almost give you the idea that here's God, and he's, he decided to put on human clothes or flesh, and, but inside of this frail flesh is the real true God. It doesn't say that. Some people truly believe, they're mistaken, they believe that Jesus' spirit is God and his flesh is human. And that's how they describe the two natures. I love the way the Nicene Creed puts it. In 325 AD, they declared that he was fully God and fully man. And that's what we see here because God didn't just clothe himself with flesh. He became flesh without yielding his deity in any way. This is the infinite God looking down on, on the slime and the filth and the garbage of our sin that we are feeding on. And he has pity upon us. And he joins us in the garbage, not to partake of it, but to help us find a way out of it. And it says, and the word became flesh. And then it goes on. Look at this. Look in your Bibles there in verse 14. And he dwelt among us. Do you know what that really is saying there? Literally, let me read it to you. And he tabernacled among us. He tabernacled among us. And so what we have here is we have, we have a picture of God Almighty becoming a tabernacle in our midst. Now, I want you to think about the implications of this. Now, he could have used this word meno, and some of you have actually studied that word. That's why I even mentioned it. It means to dwell or remain or abide. And it could have used that word here, but it didn't, John didn't want to. John wanted to use this world, tabernacle. I'm, I'm falling behind here because he, he's already preaching way ahead of me, so I've, I've got to hurry here. And Jesus, listen to this, Jesus came as the complete fulfillment of everything that we see in the tabernacle. When you're talking about the brazen altar where they have all of these sacrifices, this actually is a Christmas sermon, it really is. But on that brazen altar, the animals were sacrificed. Baby Jesus became the ultimate sacrifice so that John says later, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. As you enter into the holy place, you see the table of showbread and the candelabra and the altar of incense. These three things... And this holy place is the place for man. Man, the priests, the Levites could go in there. Actually, the Christmas story in Luke 1 starts in the holy place. 
where Zechariah goes in and he has this vision of the angel saying, you're about to have a baby in your old age, or Elizabeth is, and you're going to call him John, and he goes on and prophesies about what's going to happen with John as a forerunner for Christ, right there in the holy place, right there in front of the altar of incense. And then, once a year, the high priest was permitted to go into the holy place. I want you to turn now to Leviticus chapter 16. What takes place in that holy place has everything to do with John 1.14. Tabernacled among us. When it says tabernacled among us, we need to realize that when it says that, we're talking about the glory, the majesty, the power, all the goodness, the stuff of who God is was manifested in this dwelling called the tabernacle. And it act, the tabernacle really actually foreshadowed everything that Jesus was about to fulfill. Every aspect of the tabernacle Christ fulfilled. As a matter of fact, John already knows this. It's not an accident that he uses this specific Greek verb, not used very commonly, only a handful of times in the New Testament, because we see that in the very next chapter, we're in John 1, so John 2, Jesus says, destroy this temple and I will raise it up in three days. And they say, what? You know, it's took us, taken us 46 years to build this temple. Who do you think you are? You can't do that. And actually, it says that he was referring to his body. And in three days, you destroy this body, and in three days, I'll raise it up. And so Jesus, John has, shows us Jesus confessing he is the fulfillment of the temple, of the tabernacle. He identifies with this. Everything that took place there foreshadowed Jesus. And then we need to realize that this, even the concept of tabernacle is a housing, even a veiling, if you will, of God's glory. God was in the temple. He wasn't in the holy place. He wasn't out there where the priests made the sacrifices and washed their hands in the many labors and in the big uh, sea of water the, the, where the 12 bulls were underneath holding this huge uh, basin, this bowl of water for them to wash the sacrifices. He wasn't out there. He wasn't in the holy place, though he reflected all of us, all of it. John even talks about him being the bread of heaven and the light of the world. He dwelt in the holy place, excuse me, the most holy place. King James calls it the holy of holies. As if to say, I want you to picture in your mind the holiest thing ever. God's holy. The holy of holies. The most holy place. That's how the NIV translates. The most holy place. That's where God dwelt. So you're there in Leviticus chapter 16. I want us to take a look behind the veil because it has everything to do, believe it or not, with the Christmas story. Are you ready? Leviticus 16, 2. The Lord said to Moses, tell your brother Aaron, Aaron is the high priest, not to come whenever he chooses into the most holy place. Behind the curtain, in front of the atonement cover on the ark. Now, some of you don't have the atonement cover. You have the mercy seat. That's a traditional way of of translating that. We're going to look at in a moment. The atonement cover on the ark, or else he will die. 
because I appear in the cloud over the atonement cover. Give me a moment. Here we go. So in the most holy place, God dwelt. There was a curtain there in order to keep everybody out because only the high priest once a year could go behind it. And he did so on Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur, the day of atonement. Literally meaning covering, the day of the covering. And apparently that if he went in on any, any other day and in the not and in the and in a way not prescribed by God himself he apparently would see the glory of God in the cloud above the ark of the covenant and on top of the ark of the covenant was this mercy seat or the covering the atonement cover and he would die In order for Moses to receive the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai, there was not just the glory of God in the cloud, but there was great smoke as well. You could not approach the glory of God, even though it was veiled in that cloud. You could not even approach it. If you were to look at, at Exodus 16, God is talking about what he is going to do, how he's going to provide for the man in the wilderness. And you know what, guys, they're going to do it every day except on the Sabbath. So here's what you need to do. And off in the distance, what do they see? They see the glory of God enshrouded in the cloud. It was, I don't know, it was like light in a, in a lantern. They, it was in a distance. They could not approach it. As a matter of fact, when that very same glory cloud showed up in the temple in Exodus 14, the very end, they're all done with the tabernacle. It says that Moses could not minister in the tabernacle. He had to leave the tabernacle, Moses himself. Do you know why? Because the glory of God in the cloud filled the tabernacle. And he was blessing and sanctifying it. When Ezekiel views the temple that he sees, that I believe is a foreshadowing of, of Christ and his church, the glory of God fills that and he falls down. And worships God. Could not even approach the glory of God. Somewhat veiled, as it were, in the cloud. And we're being told here that, you know what? If the high priest just walked into the Holy of Holies and he saw the glory of God in the cloud, he would die. Too strong, too close. You see, there's something about God and his holiness and us in our sin, good as we are, sanctified by the blood of Christ as we are, we cannot see the unveiled glory of God. So this is, what, this is what the high priest had to do. Are you ready? Look there in verse 12. This is what he has to do. He goes behind once a year on Yom Kippur. That's significant. We'll see. Goes behind the curtain. But what does he do first? He says he is to take a censer full of burning coals from the altar, that is the altar of incense. Take a censer, put coals in it, and then it says, and two handfuls of finely ground fragrant incense that by the way had a very specific recipe, and take them behind the curtain. So he has a censer, he's got coals in it, and he has two handfuls, I guess it's measured out in a container, 
because if you have two handfuls, then how's he going to carry the sensor, right? Okay. So it's, it's, I imagine it's, it's measured out in a container, and he goes behind the curtain into the most holy place where God lives. He is to put the incense on the fire before the Lord, and the smoke of the incense will conceal the atonement cover above the testimony so that he will not die. This is the veiled glory of God. In a cloud, yes, but even for man, that's too powerful. He had to go behind the curtain and fill that room with smoke so that he would not be able to see the raw glory of God. Jesus is the veiled glory of God. He tabernacled among us. Now, if we were to read on, here's what else we would discover in Leviticus 16. See, the high priest had to have a sacrifice of a bull for his own sins. He then had to take a goat, sacrifice it. And and by the way, he took the blood of that goat, excuse me, the blood of the bull and you know, did this, sprinkled it seven times on the atonement cover. And then he would sacrifice the goat and do the very same things for the goat. And the goat would be for the sins of Israel. And then, of course, it says he would lay hands on another goat called the scapegoat. And someone would take that goat off the sins, not just being atoned for, but now transferred to a scapegoat led off in the wilderness. So what does all this have to do with Christmas? I think you're starting to see this concept of the veiled glory of God. But here is my question, and here is where I think we need to go, because this is what Leviticus, this is what God does, is where is the glory of God? Where does it show up? It shows up above the atonement cover. Now, this is a word that is actually very similar to the word kippur, yom kippur, the day of covering, the day of atonement. You see, over the Ark of the Covenant was this covering. The only difference between kippur and this word for atonement cover or mercy seat is that the middle letter is doubled, and there's a a, a nuance in the ending. So it's the same word. This is the covering. This is where God would show up. God would show up above the covering. The bull and the goat were sacrificed for what purpose? To make atonement. This word in in Hebrew, it's from it's from our word kippur for Yom Kippur. We see it only two times in the New Testament. We see it in Hebrews 9.5, and the author of Hebrews is basically describing what's in the holy place and what's in the most holy place, and he talks about the mercy seat or the atonement cover. We also see it one more time, and it's in Romans 3.25. I want you to write that down, Romans 3.25, because there it talks about Jesus being our atonement cover. The word that's used there, though, is this word hilasterion. 
we, we get the word. Are you ready for this? It has so much to do with what we're talking about, though. It's, it's, it means a covering, but when people translate this very odd word, they generally translate it one of two different ways, generally, until the NIV just decided, you know, we'll just call it the atonement or atonement. Because generally, this covering impacts man, and it impacts God's view of man or, or God's relationship with man. What happens is, the, when Jesus died on the cross, listen to this, when Jesus died on the cross, his blood covered our sins. So on the one hand, for me, as a result, it washed away my sin. It washed away my sin, life for life. Jesus punished for me, and his, his blood gave me life. And, and as a result, God no longer looked, looked upon my sin, but he looked upon the blood of his son, Jesus, and he washed away my sin. So that is our, that's, that's viewing us in this concept of covering mercy seat. And so people use the word, are you ready for this? You don't even have to write it down, but you've probably heard of it, expiation. That means a washing away. Others would say, you know what? This concept of atonement doesn't just impact me in washing away my sins. It actually impacts God in this way. Jesus' sacrifice bore my punishment, and so God the Father poured out his wrath and his anger on his son Jesus. Some are so horrified by this, they call it cosmic child abuse. Even people who claim to be evangelicals, cosmic child abuse. How could God the Father punish his son? Would you ever do that to your son? No, I wouldn't, because I'm not God. And my son is not, is not called Jesus. And Jesus took not just your sin, but the wrath of God, and therefore the righteous demands of God. Sin must be punished. There's no way around this. This is who God is, the nature of God, the way he created this universe. Sin has got to have its consequences and must be punished. And so his son took that punishment, and it turned away the wrath of God. That's how it impacted God. It washed away our sin, but it turned away the wrath of God. The word that they use here now is propitiation. It, 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 it satisfied the righteous demands of God, his justice. Do you realize that not one time in the New Testament does it ever say that God is angry with his people? Did you know that? Says it a lot in the Old Testament, never in the New. Isaiah actually prophesies that that would be the case. Not one time does it say God was angry with this person or their sin. So think about that. Many of us, we are hoping to get on Santa in the skies nice list, and we are afraid that we're on his bad list even as Christians, mind you. And we're wondering, how can I go from that bad list to this nice list? I'm just going to have to do everything I can. And we have missed this concept of the washing away of our sin and now standing before God in which he is no longer angry with us. We're not on the bad list. You're not on his bad list, church. You're on his nice list. And the reason why you are is because everything that Jesus did right here in fulfilling Leviticus 16. 
And so Jesus became flesh. He was the glory of God tabernacled among us and we beheld his glory so that John John the Baptist says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Just a few verses later. This idea of Jesus taking on our sin and being our atonement cover, the very place where the glory of God dwelt, the very heart of this concept of Jesus being tabernacled among us. This is commonly called the great exchange in which Jesus gave for me. The greatest gift was himself. The greatest gift that God ever gave was himself. Can I just say that the fact that Jesus came, that when the shepherds peered into the manger, they beheld the glory of God, it highlights two different things. Number one, the very fact that God would come to this earth in the form of a man, fully God, fully man, with this set purpose to redeem mankind and go to the cross and be raised from the dead, this highlights two different things. Number one, it shows me just how horrendous and awful sin is, that God would go to that length to pay for that sin. That tells me that the cost of sin is beyond measure. That tells me that Mike Curtis is depraved, thoroughly depraved. But it also tells me about Mike Curtis's dignity. That is your dignity. That is that the, the price on you was astronomically high, that God valued you that much. Let me share an illustration with you. I was reading just the other day about this diamond that was discovered in Canada. Apparently, the largest diamond apart outside of Africa the largest diamond that was found, and the thing is, is huge. You know, you hold it in your hand. It's, it's huge. It's uncut, so it's a diamond in the rough, as they say, uncut. And apparently, uh, they, they're not going to know how much this diamond costs because it's a diamond in the rough. And when an expert diamond cutter gets a hold of this, and trust me, they'll probably get the best diamond cutter on the face of planet Earth to do this because it has to be done right. You can lose millions upon millions of dollars if you don't do it right. And you've got to go with the grain. You've got to cut it just right. So it's possible that it would form just one huge diamond but generally not because of how the grain goes and how you cut the diamond. It may only make a lot of very small diamonds. But apparently the most expensive diamond was auctioned off at just under, are you ready for this, $50 million. That could buy my home and all of yours and have money left over to buy everyone else's in the next church. All their houses, 
50 million, actually it's like 48 or 49 and a half million, something like this. Some just ridiculous number. But at an auction, where do they get a price on it? Well, let me tell you this. First of all, they, they value, they look at the diamond. <clears throat> they look at its color. Apparently, blue diamonds are like the most unique and expensive. So there's this uniqueness about it. It's the color, it's beauty, it's facets and reflection, and all of these physical things are wrapped up in what this diamond now is worth. But even that doesn't tell the story. The real value of that diamond is found in the eyes of the buyer. No place else. For you and me, we would look at that diamond and you would say, I'll give you $1,000 for it because that's all I've got. That's all it's worth to me. And so for you, it's only 1000 bucks. But apparently to someone out there, it was worth just under $50 million. And so he gave almost $50 million to purchase that one diamond. You see, when God determines your value, he understands that you're made in the image of God. But he also understands that you're a diamond in the rough and that there is a sin nature to you that has actually broken that image of God. And so your value, true, intrinsic value, comes from only one place, and that is in the eyes of the buyer. God himself, who purchased you on the cross by his blood, Because, yes, you were depraved, but he saw the dignity in you, and he said, I will make a choice, and I will place an astronomical and infinite value on you. And how do we know this? The price that he paid. And trust me, it was a whole lot more than $50 million. That's your value. This is the God born in a stable that became our atonement cover. And covering that, loved us and bought us. He bought you. So my question is, to the shepherds, when they looked at baby Jesus, what did they see? Did they see the veiled glory of God tabernacled among them? Did they see the fulfillment of this tabernacle of God in all its holiness and amazing, brilliant glory? Did they see the great exchange, the covering provided for our sins and shame, the washing away of sins and the satisfaction of God's justice? Is this what they saw? Did they see them in them? Did they see then in themselves the utter horror of their wickedness and rebellion, their depravity, but also the infinite value that God placed upon their dignity? and bought them by his choice, placing upon us his value. Did they see this? Did they see the ultimate final destruction of our sin by King Jesus, by this great exchange that would enable us to live in complete freedom from the curse, from sin itself, for all eternity with our God and Savior, Jesus Christ? I'll be honest with you, I don't think so but we can. If you came here this morning and your view of God was St. Nick in the sky, 
hoping that you'll make his nice list because your list is pretty long. All of the wants and the dreams in your heart and all the things you want to accomplish, all of the things you want and need and desire and long for, and some of them honestly are valid and very significant, very important, even in the eyes of God. But it all hinges on this one thing. Am I on his nice list? And I want to tell you this morning that that St. Nick in the sky is not the God that we see here in the manger. The God that we see here in the manger, the veiled glory of God, by his blood, made atonement for us, placing such value on you. Why would he do this? Because God so loved the world. God so loved you. God wanted you to be with him forever. The only way that you are ever going to make his nice list is right here. It's by what Jesus did on the cross because you can't do it. You can't pay for your sins. You can't do enough nice things. Trust me. Come December when I was a kid, man, I was working so hard trying to be so nice. I could never do it. I was so frustrated. I was going to my mom like every day, mom, I'm so sorry. And, and in my mind, I'm thinking, I really want to be on Santa's nice list. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, take all of that and throw it away. And gaze on the babe born in the manger who came in God's veiled glory with one set purpose. To make this relationship with God who loves you, who rejoices over you with singing, who placed such value on you when you were auctioned off that he bought you by his blood. This Jesus came for you. You don't have to work. You have to let him, though, consume you and wrap you up in his love and place this passion, because this is what he'll do, place this passion in your heart for him and him alone. Because when Jesus died, he took that veil, that curtain, and he ripped it in two, and he said, hey, hey, everyone, come on. Come to me now because of this. That's how much I love you. That's what you're worth to me. Infinite value. That's what you're worth. Because the infinite God was tabernacled among us, born as a babe and went to the cross and rose from the dead for you and me. This is his goodness. When you wake up Christmas morning, you're on God's good list. I'm going to tell you this right now. He has such amazing things in store for you. When we're talking about hope and we're talking about singing joy to the world, when you get this church, there's no greater joy and hope that you can experience than the very fact that I am in this perfect relationship with God. I don't have to work super hard in the month of December to make it on his good list. Jesus already did that for me, and I rest in that every day, every day. 
Will you stand with me? Some of you are really wrestling with hope, really wrestling with this concept of joy. It feels so elusive. I want you to know that's what Christmas is all about. And that's why Jesus came.